This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. Hey, everybody. I have an exciting announcement, which is that the Coffee Shop Writers Group is back. We are now open for enrollment. There are only 12 spots in the group, and it is starting mid-January. So anyone who signs up as well during the month of December for the group, which you can do at carolinedonahue.com slash coffee shop, gets a tarot reading from me um, on your writing project. So again, you can sign up for the group at carolinedonahue.com slash coffee shop. And anyone who signs up for the group in the month of December gets a free tarot reading with me about your writing project. So I look forward to hopefully seeing you in the group. Now let's get on with the show. This is episode 82. My guest this week is Mark Freuenfelder. He's a blogger, illustrator, and journalist. He was editor-in-chief of the magazine Make and is co-owner and co-founder of the collaborative web blog Boing Boing. Along with his wife, Carla, he founded Boing Boing in 1988, where he acted as co-editor until the print version folded in 1997. Then it came back as an online version. He also became an editor at Wired from 1993 to 1998. He was the living online columnist for Playboy magazine from 1998 to 2002. And he's the co-editor of the Happy Mutant Handbook. He was the author and illustrator of Mad Professor. And he's the author and illustrator of The World's Worst and The Computer and Illustrated History. He's also the author of Rule the Web, How to Do Anything and Everything on the Internet, and Made by Hand. I had Mark on, obviously, because he's done a lot of writing, and because he has approached writing books from a journalism background, and also both online and print background. And so I wanted to have Mark on because I knew he would have a unique take on the process of writing books, where books are going, what he sees the purpose of books being, and what can uniquely be done with books. Um, I loved hearing about the entire history of where Boing Boing came from, and it just left me smiling so much talking to Mark. So I hope you're as inspired as I was, and here we go with Mark Freienfelder. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Caroline. It's great to be here. There is a lot that you have done with the writing world. And there's so much that I want to explore with it. But one thing in particular, that I have really loved seeing in what you've done in your writing world is this sort of balance between the tech and online world and the sort of tangible hold it in your hands world, given that your two most recent books were about how to do anything and everything on the internet, but also made by hand. So I'm interested in how you've managed to balance these two interests in what you're writing about. Yeah, I think it's just because I'm curious about so many things. Um, one of the things that at Make Magazine, where, where I was an editor, we, we kind of focused on what we called broad spectrum enthusiasts. And, and so I, I am definitely one of those kind of people. I'm interested in, in how things work. And for me, the best way to learn how something works or to learn about it is to actually like try doing it. And even if you're horrible at it, you get a lot out of it. You know, like making, for example, like making your own chair. The first chair you make is going to be really bad no matter what. But 
the cool thing is once you do that, then you become really observant of what chairs, how chairs are made. You know, you become like, oh, okay, so that's how they do it. And it not only makes you more observant about the world around you, but it also makes you appreciate people who are really good at doing it. So I feel like I'm not that great at doing things, but I'm like really good at appreciating things and great at um, appreciating people who are good at that kind of stuff. And for me, that's, that's kind of a fulfilling way to be, to kind of learn about the world and how it works and, and the people who, who make things happen that way. That's so true. I think that nothing has made me appreciate the incredible work that goes into writing books more than trying to write my own book. Yeah. I'm thinking, how do they make it sound so effortless? It's so true. One of the things I think is the hardest to do, and I repeatedly struggle with this, so I wonder how you made this work, but is trying to explain something in words, how to do something physical or even go through a step-by-step process. Like, how have you translated that in explaining, you know, how to do things on the internet or, you know, how to make things is there a process you go through when you try to digest it into language? Because for me, it's like virtually impossible. It's really, really hard to do. Like, I remember when I was in, in middle school, we had to like do this exercise where we told someone to do a simple task and they had to do exactly what we said. And so I think mine was to like telling someone how to tie their tie a shoelace. And it's so hard to like describe it rather than just show it. And I think in one way, that's like why YouTube is so popular. And, and like one, one thing, one, one thing I like to do, I, I'm into like amateur, like magic, like card tricks and things like that. And oh, I really? A bunch of, yeah. I've been doing it for, well, when I was a kid, I did it and then I stopped for a while. And I've been for the last five years or so, I've been really into to card magic again. And so I have a bunch I of books that. and stuff and reading it, you know, you can get it, but it takes a long time to read like a two page description of how to do a card trick. But if you buy like a video showing someone how to do the trick, it's so much easier because you just see the person saying, okay, you know, do this. And you see the motion that they do. And it's just like, you don't even need the words almost. And so I kind of feel like for, for instructional stuff, we have the technology now to do videos. Everyone has a phone that can play YouTube videos. And I kind of think that in many cases, we do not need to have how-to books anymore. I think we're going to see kind of the, the end of how-to books. And I know that's like a sad thing to say for people who love books. I do think there's a huge place for books. Books will always be around, print books and eBooks and things like that. For, for how-to, I'm more and more convinced that video is the way to go. I know. I wondered about that. I'm like, because it's been enough time since made by hand that I wondered how that had shifted. Cause I think about something like I used to have this insane collection of knitting books, uh-huh. like just tons of knitting books. I mean, I had all of them cause I'm crazy about knitting. That's cool. And one of the things that was you know, revolutionary for me was the video. Cause there were certain things where it would be like, take the, you know, take the needle and put it through the back of the loop from the left side and the pearl side. And I was just like, what are you saying to me right now? Yeah. And now you can get some lovely elderly lady who's probably British with a nice accent saying, 
you know, here's how you do the stitch. And they show you and you're like, I got it. I got it immediately. That's so good. And, and I think like books were like a poor substitute for being with that woman in person showing you how to do it. And then somebody said, well, you know, if you, if you don't have access to that great knitter who can show you how to do it, we'll, we'll give you this book. It's not as good, but you know, you spend time and really concentrate, you'll figure it out. Well, now we have video and it's much better than the book. So why not use that technology to do that? Absolutely. But what do you think? Cause I think that there is something that that could be captured in the book. Like now I want to read the biography of the lady who makes the YouTube videos. Yeah. And it's like, who is she? Sure. Like all I see is her hands. I want to know who she is. And I'm interested in like, if you were to extend these books that you've been doing, what do you think would be uniquely, I don't know, beneficiary? Because if you're thinking about things made by hand and how we have this incredible attachment to handmade objects and we have this whole like rise of the artisanal and all of this that we're seeing, how do you think this like improvement of video could play itself out in books where there are things that books are still better for? That was... A crazy yeah. way of phrasing that question. Well, I think like <laughs> you said, the books add context and you learn about people. Like I, you know, when it comes to magic, reading books about like, so, so the, the actual, like learning that the slights and, you know, the kind of the manipulation of the cards and stuff is so great with a video, but reading about the presentation of it and kind of the thought process that goes into how to present not not the mechanics of it but more the the theatrics of it mm. that i think works really well hearing that and, and kind of hearing like from people's experience what works and what doesn't i like that and learning about the person anecdotes about you know how the trick they did it you know and, and made a mistake and corrected it i think that works very well so it's like i guess what i'm thinking of is telling a story works really well in a book or or audio and, and video doesn't really add a lot to that. So that, I think, is where you, you have that balance. I, I wrote a book called um, Maker Dad that was a, a book of projects for dads and daughters to do together. And I did it like probably three or four years ago. And I don't think I would do that book again as a book. I think I would probably do it as a video. Do you think your daughters would be into being in the video um, or would you be stuck doing <laughs> it by yourself? I think... No, I think one of them would. My, my younger daughter, my 14-year-old, would, would like to do it, and my 20-year-old probably wouldn't. And so it would be much better as a book. And, and then Made by Hand, I didn't have very many how-tos in there. I think I talked about like how to make kombucha and sauerkraut. And actually, recipes might be something where, where books are also pretty good. Yeah, I agree, because there's nothing like the, the photography. And then the list format of a recipe, you can yeah. get it. Yeah, it's true. And and I often get my recipes online and just print them out. Like the the uh the ribs that I brought over to your house last uh week. I I got a so recipe. So good. Oh, thank you. I got a recipe. Can we share that recipe? Um, Can we put that in the show yeah, notes? For sure. I'll send it to you. You guys should make these ribs. They're delicious. <laughs> and that was, you know, something that was print. And I think that's that's actually better than a video because you have that list right in front of you and you're typically in the kitchen measuring things. And to hear it sequentially through a video is not as helpful as having it kind of all in front of you, like to, to gather everything. Absolutely. Well, I want to go back to the beginning a little bit, if we could, with your 
process with writing because you, well, maybe not all the way to the beginning. It's We can start a little sooner than that. But you founded Boing Boing as a print project That's right. in 88 before it was the website. And I'm interested in just the story of how that started in print and then ended up on the web and and where, you know, how you feel about that transformation. Yeah, for sure. So I was, um, I, I started out as out of college as a mechanical engineer. I was working in um, the disk drive industry, designing hard drives. And um, I did not really, I, I wasn't that excited with, with my job. I, I, I didn't think it was very fulfilling. And so I started just writing for, I was in Boulder, Colorado at the time, and I was just writing for the local paper, the Boulder Daily Camera, doing um, software reviews. I, I wrote to an editor there. I found, I, I think I called him up on the phone or sent a letter. This was kind of before email. And he said, sure, if you want to write for us, you can. I can't pay you anything, but I just thought it would be fun to do. And so I really enjoyed the the, the process of writing. And I thought, you know, I started seeing these other other zines around there that, that people had been publishing. There was this great magazine or a zine actually is called Fact Sheet Five. And all it was was reviews of other zines. It was like the the Yahoo of the zine world. Like this directory. <laughs> and I found I can't remember where I found a copy. It might have been I I think I might have read about it in a magazine called Whole Earth Review. And so I got a copy and I'm just like, this is incredible. It was like a hundred pages long. This one guy who lived in upstate New York got all these zines sent to him by people. And he would give like this two or three sentence review of everything he got with ordering information. So I just went through it with a highlighter and found like, you know, dozens and dozens of things that I wanted to send in, you know, send like a dollar or two and people would send them to me. And I would get these amazing zines. Like one, I remember one was called The Optimistic Pessimist. It was for people who collected Pez, Pez dispensers. And just That's so punny. Like very obsessive, very personal, very like, uh, you know, handmade. And it was a, we were just beginning to see the uh, early desktop publishing uh, world reach people. You know, it was becoming affordable. Computers were more affordable. This kind of software, every every town had had a copy shop, you know, to make cheap photocopies. Right. And so I thought I, I want to do, I want to make my own zine. It was just so exciting. And so my wife, Carla and I thought, you know, what would, what, what interests us and what would we like to write about? And so we liked comic books. We liked science fiction. We liked comp things that people were doing with computers. We liked zines. And so we said, let's just do a, a zine about the stuff that we're really interested in. And we'll interview people that we like. We really liked cyberpunk science fiction at the time. And we thought instead of like, we'll write to the cyberpunk science fiction authors that we like and ask them to not write fiction, but to write about real things in their life. And because we figured they would be interesting people and they would have an interesting take on, on the present rather than the future. And so we just, you know, with no experience in journalism or magazines or anything, we just started to write people and ask if we could interview them, um, writing publishers and asking if they could send us books to try out. Um, we wrote to people who manufactured brain machines, like those consciousness altering machines that would like pulse sound and light in, 
sound into your ears and light into your eyes. And so we just started getting all the stuff in the mail and reviewing it and interviewing people. It was so much fun. And it took us, you know, a long time because we, I was both, we were both working. I think my, my wife was going to grad school actually, and I was working as an engineer, so we could only do it like on the weekends and the evenings. So it took us about a Mm -hmm. year to do the first issue of Boing Boing in 1988. We printed a hundred copies you know, just using Xerox machines. And and so I sent one, I sent a copy into fact sheet five so they would review it. About two months later, the review appeared and it sold out right away. <gasps> it was like, we just started getting all this mail, you know, like people, oh, please send me a copy. Please send me a copy. Because he gave it a really good review. He said, you know, oh, like, nice. we're really excited. And one of the letters we got was from a, a zine distributor in New York. And he said, I would like to sell this in New York City at the various newsstands that I distribute to. Could you send me a hundred copies of the next issue? So we said, yeah, for sure. So we, the next, for the second issue, we printed 200 copies and we sent a hundred to him, sent another one to Factory Five and, and that sold out. So it actually like doubled every issue. And I don't know how long it doubled, but our, our final issue was 15, but the 14th issue, the circulation, we printed 17,500 of them. Oh my God, that's amazing. It was pretty big. And uh, it was because- You weren't photocopying them no, anymore. No, we had, you know, we had a printer and everything and we had distributors. Oh, and this was like around 93, I think 90, 92 or 93. And what happened to us happened to a ton of other people who were in the zine world. Th- two of the big distributors went bankrupt and so mm. we were like, you know, they owed us like tens of thousands of dollars and it basically killed, killed the zine world, these people doing that. And the other thing that kind of really like, it didn't actually kill it completely because there are still people making great scenes, but it, it, it the, the internet basically took over and, and took everyone's attention and it was a much easier way to distribute like online zines and then, and then blogs and everything. And, and of course we went that route ourselves. And there are tons of advantages to publishing online, as everyone knows, you know, you know, the the, the obvious ones being like fixing typos or or errors and things like that. And of course, you lose things in the process too, because zines are just fun artifacts to hold and they're, they're fun to make and things like that. But they're also expensive to print and mail and deal with, you know, a thousand zines sitting in your bedroom waiting to be mailed <laughs> and put into envelopes and writing you know handwriting the address on them and oh my them god but at the time it was great fun and i i miss well i don't miss it but i i have very fond memories of those early days of putting together a zine and kind of that whole zine scene of other people yeah there was like a it pretty much what would happen if if someone sent you a zine, you would send them one back. So, you know, it, it was like a kind of a, a gift community or a, a gift economy. So when Boing Boing, you know, was kind of in its prime as a zine, we would get a couple of hundred zines in the mail every month and we would send a, a free copy to everybody and then we would review our favorite ones. It was really exciting. Like the P.O. box every day was just like stuffed with colorful... Wow amazing, eclectic publications. And so you don't, you know, that, that era is over and it's too bad because that was like a super cool experience to 
get that, you know, every single day, your mailbox would be filled with this wild surprises. That's so great. Do you think, I mean, where do you think that energy has gone? Has it gone online or, or where are you seeing that energy now? There are still people making zines and they're, they're really nice looking zines that kind of remind me of that. But I think the scene is much, much smaller now. I think that I feel that like indie games, that the mm. people making indie games probably would have been like zinesters in the early 90s. Uh, I feel that, uh, you know, people doing kind of lo-fi music might have been that way too. It's kind of that mm -hmm. do-it-yourself media, like zine, zines are do-it-yourself media and then indie games and, and um, music are also kind of DIY activities. And they're also kind of, zines usually are, were solo efforts that people could contribute to, but there was, you know, just a few people. And, and indie games, I think, are kind of the same. It's like one or two or three or four people doing it. So that's what, that's what I think the energy probably is. I don't know. What, what do you think? I wonder, I mean, a little bit, maybe this is my self-interest talking, but I want, I see a little bit of it in podcasting just because mm. there's, you know, you have to be pretty obsessed about a topic to start one. That's a good point. And it's a DIY media. Yeah. But I wonder if, if zines have moved into that. I think you're right. Arena. And there's a podcast for every conceivable topic too. Yeah. And you, I mean, there I keep laughing at ones I find out about, like where they'll talk through specific shows. Like we're going to talk through every episode of the show and all of the references for it. It's like nerd heaven uh -huh. on there. <laughs> That's cool. Somebody needs to do a podcast, like a fact sheet five of podcasts. Yes. Like the podcast review yeah. of podcasts. There must that would be, be great. somebody who does that. I don't know. Maybe you could do yeah, it. That you would could be do fun. I mean, not like you don't have anything <laughs> else to do with your time. But the thing also that I love is that so you built all of this, you built a print boing boing, and then you started by saying, oh, I wasn't a journalist, but you ended up working for Wired right? coming out of this, right? So, yeah. so it, I love this story of that you built something just because you were interested in it yourself. And then you ended up at like a really prominent publication. That was, yeah, that was interesting. So that was kind of a, a zine-ish thing, the way that happened too, because the Whole Earth Review, which was the, the magazine that introduced me to Fact Sheet 5, so the, the Whole Earth Review was the magazine that kind of spun out of something called the Whole Earth Catalog that right. originally was published in 1968 by this really interesting polymath named Stuart Brand. And it basically was this book about like rebooting civilization. And it was just filled with reviews of tools and interesting books for like, you know, geodesic homes, gardening techniques, um, personal computers, even in the late sixties, they were talking about computers, but basically kind of like a guide for like communes to like operate, but, but more than that vehicles, bikes, it was it's an amazing document. And it, it ended up turning into this thing called the whole earth review, which was very similar, but it had feature articles in it. And one of the things was a review of fact sheet five. So the guy who was the editor in chief of whole earth review, the name was Kevin Kelly. And he was a co-founder of Wired Magazine. Ah. So Kevin, we, we swapped subscriptions, Whole Earth Review and Boing Boing. I, I sent a copy of Boing Boing to Kevin. And I said, I love Whole Earth Review. And, you know, you guys were an inspiration for Boing Boing. So he said, oh, great, let's trade subscriptions. So Kevin was familiar with Boing Boing. And so when Wired started, before the first issue came out, 
he asked me if I would be interested in working for, for Wired. And so it took a little bit of back and forth and everything. But by the time the third issue of Wired came out, I think it was like July, it was in July of 2003, we moved from Los Angeles. Carl and I moved from Los Angeles to San Francisco when I started working there as an associate editor at Wired. And Carla stayed on doing Boing Boing um, in the same building that Wired was being published in. It was a, a South in South Park, San Francisco. And there was this like this bottom floor of uh, the building. It was a crazy place. It was really fun. A bunch of people were doing zines at the time in just one big mm -hmm. room. And this guy, Randy Stickrod, who had made a lot of money with a computer graphics magazine, had one corner and he owned like the whole floor. He was paying rent on the whole phone. He just let everyone work there for free. We didn't even think oh, about wow. like, how generous that was at the time. We're just like, oh, thanks. And so You're like in San Francisco, yeah. my God, I know, it was crazy. So Carla set up spot right in the corner doing Boing Boing. And then there was a, an, an, a magazine for uh, South Asian Americans called Hum Magazine. And then right next to Carla was a magazine called Might that was put out by um, Dave Eggers, you know, the guy who wrote oh, uh, yeah. Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius. And so, so yes. Dave Eggers and Dave Moody were right next to her. And there was another thing called Just Go, a travel magazine and the Star Wars universe, like all these different magazines that were doing that. And then three floor, and then two floors up was a, or one floor up was a Macintosh magazine. And the, on the third floor was, was Wired magazine. And again, it was just one wow. big room. And, uh, so I started working there and, you know, I really did not know how to be a journalist. I, it was just, you know, self-taught. <laughs> it was like kind of, you know, like faking it till you make it kind of thing. I, I just learned how a magazine really operated from these people, even, well, and, you know, the interesting thing is a lot of them didn't have that much magazine experience either. Like Louis Rossetto and Jane Metcalf, the founders of, of Wired had done a kind of a weird little magazine in Amsterdam called Language Technology. Mm. It was like about like machine translation and typography and things like that. It was like a, just a, it was. It sounds amazing. Yeah. And for the time, like they, they really pushed it hard with desktop publishing and stuff, but they didn't really have much experience doing a mag magazine other than this zine-ish kind of a thing. And uh, they hooked up with Kevin Kelly because Kevin reviewed it for the whole Earth Review and said, call, described it as something like the least boring computer magazine ever. And so <laughs> they, they met up with Kevin and Kevin had, Kevin was actually kind of shopping around a magazine idea called Signal that was based on a special issue of Whole Earth Review that was all about kind of the computer revolution. It came out in 1988. It was actually a, a, a special issue of Whole Earth Review called Signal, but he did another book called Signal. But if you look at this, if you can, you can find it online, look, look up Whole Earth Review and Signal in 1988, and you'll see you can get download a PDF of Signal that it really was like a prototype for Wired magazine five years before Wired came out. It's like this brilliant magazine that kind of predicted where we are today it was like all about the communications revolution and kevin's was very prescient in, in thinking that you know the computer revolution was the computer part was not interesting what was interesting was that it was a communications revolution and that it was connecting yeah. people and it was you know being able to instantly get in touch with anybody around the world and share 
information freely as something that had never happened before. And so that, that was like a really profound idea. And I'm actually really fortunate that for the last four or five years, I, I um, am a business partner with Kevin on a website that we do together called Cool Tools, which is uh, where, where we review a different tool every day and is very much an extension of what the whole Earth catalog was. And, and I just feel like really excited to be part of that because Kevin was also, he worked at the whole Earth catalog. So this is like kind of the, the evolution of, of the whole Earth catalog. And I love to think that it's still alive in, in that way. How many projects do you have going at once? Well, do you yeah, know how many there are? I, I just wonder. Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to consolidate more. It's so hard though, isn't it? <laughs> I know because that's, you know, being a broad spectrum enthusiast, you want, it's hard to say no to anything because everything sounds like so much fun to try. But I, I do Boing Boing as a website and I have some really good partners that I do it with. So it's, it's not a solo effort at all anymore. It's something that I, I am a, a, a team member with, uh, with four or five other people. And then I do cool tools and that's Kevin and I, and a woman named Claudia. So that's like a, a three person. Oh, well, actually we have a, a guy doing videos for us, um, two named Donald. So there's, there's four of us doing cool tools. And then I'm also pretty much spending more and more time and a, quite a significant, significant percentage of my time at a, at a place in Palo Alto called Institute for the Future which is a nonprofit think tank that is that is going to celebrate its 50th anniversary next year the same year that the whole earth catalog came out crazily and so cool. yeah and so they they are a uh, they're a think tank that has I, 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 so they're a spin-off of the rand corporation and they've been helping organizations of all kinds think about the future so that they can make better decisions in the present to become resilient to any kind of changes in the future. And so Amazing. Um, I'm doing things like developing podcasts for them, doing research for them. Uh, I am the editor of an annual magazine that they do called future. Now it's really a, a cool place to be. And with such interesting people uh, who, you know, uh, sociologists, anthropologists, different kinds of scientists and they're doing such cool stuff. And I, I am like really excited to be part of that, th that group of people. And they're based in Palo Alto. So I go up there a couple of times a month and then I work from home also. So those are the main things. And then, and then the other thing that I just do, you know, when I have time is freelance articles and, and books when I get a chance. I just wrote an article for, for Wired a few weeks ago that was, uh, an interesting experience where I had purchased some Bitcoin just kind of as an experiment to see how it actually works. Um, because I had been doing research on blockchain technology for Institute for the future and blockchain is, is part of what, what makes Bitcoin work. And so I thought, you know, a great way to learn about blo blockchains is to actually get some Bitcoin and try spending it and using it and stuff like that. And I ended up, I had my Bitcoin stored on a little hardware wallet, which is like a little device that looks like a USB flash drive. 
And I bought like $3,000 worth, about seven and a half Bitcoins. And so I paid like $400 a Bitcoin for it. And for, for a couple of dumb reasons, I ended up like forgetting my password to access that little device. Oh no. And so I freaked out and it was really horrible because the price of Bitcoin kept on going up. And it was at this point, the problem with this hardware device is every time I entered the wrong pin code, it would make, wait, make me wait twice as long to enter in the next <gasps> one. Oh. And, and they, and so the company said, there's nothing you can do about it. And I like was emailing people, you know, asking for help and talking to people on you Reddit. Need some hackers. Well, I ended up, so when the price was like $30,000, my, the value of my Bitcoin was like $30,000 and I'm like, <gasps> I can't get it. And I'm like having to wait like 32 hours from, for my next guess. And pretty soon it's going to be like years and then decades before I could. Oh my God. I got an email from the company that made the hardware wallet. And they, it was a bulk email to everyone who owned these devices. And they said, we've discovered a security flaw. So we, we want you to upgrade your, your device. And I'm like, oh my God, there's a security flaw. So I started asking around. You're like, what is yeah. it? <laughs> and, and so I talked to this guy that who's kind of like a noted Bitcoin expert named Andreas Antonopoulos. And he told me that he knew of a 15-year-old kid who lived in the UK who knew how to ex, you know take care to exploit this this flaw and so i ended up hiring him and he wrote <laughs> he wrote some like exploit firmware for me and made a video and showed me how to do it and i ended up hacking into my hardware wallet and getting my bitcoin back and it was like this amazing experience to do something where pe- everyone told me it was impossible. And this 15-year-old kid saved me. And, you know, I, I ended up paying him close to a Bitcoin to uh, do it for me, but it was well worth it. And so anyway, That's I wrote, if, you, if you search Wired for a story called I Lost My Pin, you can, you can see the whole article. It, I'm, I'm giving you the very, <laughs> we'll the, 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 very, very like simplified version of what happened. It was really a complex involved thing with a lot of detours and, and scares and things like that, but it was a fun article. So with all of these, I mean, all of your interests and all of the things you're engaging with and all of these cool things that are, that you're putting yourself in the way of, how have you over the course of time known when something is an article and when it's a book? Because it's hard to hang with a book for a long time when you're a broad spectrum yeah, enthusiast oh, and you want to keep getting into that. So how, how was that for you to commit to book yeah. ideas when there are all these cool things going on all the time? Yeah. You know, one thing that's been, I think, really good for me is having a, an agent who is like, <laughs> who's, who's smart and, and patient and, and is good at letting me bounce ideas off of him. And he'll tell me if he thinks something is like too thin to be a book. Cause I, I tend to get like overexcited. Like after just thinking about something for a couple of days, I'll say, Oh, I think, you know, I can write a book about this. And most of the time he'll say, no, I don't think that you can do a book about this. <laughs> and then, you know, every once in a while he'll say, yeah, that is a book. And, and he's, I, I trust him every time his name's bird level. And he's been like great for that. So I, I, you, I really depend on, on him to help me do that because I, I will, you know, any exciting idea that comes my way, I'll think, Oh yeah, that, there's a book there. 
Yeah. Nice. And I think, you know, over time, I've also learned just having written now like eight books, I have a better sense at this point of what will work as a book and what won't for me and what will keep my interest and what will have enough, enough there to make it happen. So having finished eight, did you only start eight or have you started other ones of, and been like, mm, that maybe not so much partway um, through? I have fortunately, you know, been in a position where the, the books I were all like accepted from a proposal. So I didn't really start writing a book and then submit the book. I would just write a proposal and maybe a sample chapter. And so mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think, you know, and, and again, it's just having a good agent. Luckily, he will only like tell me to write a proposal if he's sure he can sell something. So luckily every book I've done mm. has sold. So I have not had the unfortunate experience that a lot of people have had where they write a book or a substantial amount of it and either can't find a publisher for it or abandon it for one reason or another, which is, you know, tough. And I mean, it's just part of being a writer for a lot of people. And I'm sure, you know, it'll happen to me one of these days too. So it seems like it's part of Well, it sounds of, like you've got a lucky charm. Yes, how far. did you, how did you meet your agent? Um, he emailed me out of the blue. I think he read some stuff I wrote on Boing Boing and said that he liked what I wrote. And it was really weird. It was weird timing because he wrote me about the same time that, um, a publisher, I think it was St. Martin's, wrote to me and asked if I would be interested in writing a book about uh, tips and tricks for for web users. This was in the early mm. 2000s. And so when Bird wrote me, I said, you know, as a matter of fact, I, a publisher wrote to me recently and asked me if I would like to write a book. And so he immediately stepped in and became my agent for it and did a great job with my contract and everything. And so we've been working together ever since. That's amazing. Yeah. I think this is great evidence, though. I mean, I think something that's so inspiring about, well, there's a lot that's inspiring about the whole story you've told today, but is that you started just by doing something that was interesting to you and just said, you know what? And you and Carla were just really into what you were seeing in the zine culture and everything else was kind of built from that original interest. Yeah, I know. It's it's uh, been great to be able to do something that, you know, just to kind of follow your interest and be able to keep on doing it. I know that that's not like the case for, for other people. And so that, you know, to me is something that I am really grateful about, you know, and, and I did spend quite a few years just working, doing jobs that I didn't, didn't love, um, you know, especially like engineering and kind of some like systems networking kind of stuff like that when I was in my 20s. And so I got a taste of kind of like working in a cubicle or, you know, an office and not having fun going to work every day and having a horrible commute. And so that was definitely an incentive for me to like try to do something else <laughs> and get away from that. I, I, I had one job where I had to drive on the 405 every day between like Sherman Oaks and Marina Del Rey. And it took like an hour and a half oh. each way. And it was just miserable. And I hated the job and I hated the people that I worked with. And it was like not fun where it was doing like failure analysis on disk drives that had been returned by customers. And I'd have to like die, oh, diagnose God. what was wrong with them. <laughs> That's like Bartleby the Scrivener or something. It's like 
That's like a mythology tale. Yeah, it was a horrible job. It was horrible. And so it was it was great to be able to like break out of that and and do this kind of work. And and as soon as I like discovered journalism, I'm like, why didn't I study this in school? Why did I not even think of like writing as as a way to make a living? It was I, I think at, when I was younger, I just didn't really think much about my future. You know, when I when I graduated from college, I was in a band and we moved to London and like the furthest thing in my mind was working as an engineer and we tried to like make it as a band and it, it didn't work. And so then I worked as an engineer just because that's what I had my degree in. But I did, I didn't really think about like, I, I, I wasn't a good planner, but uh, <laughs> I, I uh, stumbled into writing. And, and once that happened, you know, I thought, Oh, this is fun because the idea, one thing that's fun about writing is you you get to jump in and explore a new world and um you know you can take that even a step farther and kind of do this participatory journalism where you write about your experience trying things or or participating in something and so that i find is like really great when you get to write about trying something out i mean that that to me is like the the ultimate experience so great and I think the enthusiasm, I mean, I think following your enthusiasm and how you've been able to do that is a great example to other people, because I think we all feel like in some ways, like, oh, you have to write something that's going to sell, or you have to figure out what's going to sell and then write that, whether you're excited about it or not. And I think part of the appeal and what has made people you know, reach out, like your agent reach out, is that the enthusiasm is clear in what you're writing. And I think that if you follow that enthusiasm, I would encourage people to try doing that as you're writing. Yeah, definitely. To pull you definitely. forward. And also, I did, I did do one book where I didn't use my agent at all. It was a little card trick ebook, And I, I wanted to just make something that I knew would not sell very many copies. But I thought it would be fun to like do a book where I showed people actually how to make their own trick card decks. And so I um, had fun like laying it out. It was almost like a zine. I used a program called Vellum, which is a great app it's for Macs mm. and it lets you make ebooks for for Amazon and Apple and you add graphics and it has nice templates and stuff and so I made that and then I sold it as an Amazon ebook and and I, I still have it on there and I didn't make much money from it but um, you know it still sells uh, a, a few copies every month and I just did it really because I just love media and I love making media. And so, you know, I, I think that even if I was doing a job that I didn't like, I would still be doing, doing that and, and not really caring that I got paid to do it or not. I'm not really doing any of it for the money other than the fact that of course yeah. I do have to survive and support a family, but it's just, I'm doing what I enjoy doing. That's awesome. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. And I'm hoping that everybody feels inspired to try something and maybe explore a topic or write about something just because you're excited about it. I think that's something that I've really learned from watching you and, and what you've worked on. That's so cool. Thank you very much, Caroline. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. 
To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.